This morning, the scripture reading is from Acts. It's Acts 8, 26 to 40. It's found on page 917 in the Pew Bible. Please stand if you're able. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a shepherd he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the reading of the word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 8 as we look at this story and let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. What an incredible gift, what an enduring comfort, what a provocative medicine you give us in your word. So Lord, may we see you clearly as a result this morning in looking into your word, may we hear your voice, may our hearts be engaged, may our hearts be changed, may you be glorified, amen. Well, every industry has buzzwords for what employers are looking for in prospective candidates, the things you have to make sure you put on your resume and so on, and churches are no different. And one of the buzzwords or phrases that you'll come across if you spend time perusing job postings for pastoral positions is this, a demonstrated ability to grow a church. A demonstrated ability to grow a church. Churches want to hire pastors that will help them grow because every church wants to grow, right? And that's kind of common sense. Uh, in that we have a mission to make disciples of Christ, and, and we want more people to know Christ, and that ought to translate into some sort of 
more people in the church. But in the last several decades, churches in America have become obsessed and infatuated with the idea of growth. Uh, If you trace some of the history of the modern church growth movement, you'll see that it started out as a genuine desire to reach peoples and not just individuals with the gospel, a good, good foundation. But as that passion to grow, uh, that passion eventually fed a pressure to grow. And under that pressure, attention increasingly began to focus on methodology, on the formula, on finding the right recipe. Even today, you blog on this, or you you search the blogs, and it's eight keys for unlocking the growth potential of your church, or 25 proven strategies for rapid church growth. If you do this, your church will grow. And of course, not everything the church growth movement uh, produced was bad. That's far from it. But it revealed a several subtle but strongly held collective assumptions about what success means in gospel ministry. Assumptions like, bigger is always better. Or the more strategic your location, the greater impact you can have for the kingdom. Or the larger your platform, the more effective your ministry And the result of this is not only the proliferation of what's become the celebrity pastor culture, where it's not just enough to to simply pastor a local church. You've got to have a side platform as well with book deals and and a a conference speaking circuit and so on and so forth. Uh, Not only has it fueled that culture, it's also fueled a subtle disdain for ministry in more obscure contexts. It's really hard for churches of 30 or 50 or 100 in towns of 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 to find pastors who are willing to serve in that context. Despite the fact that the average church in America has 70 people in it. And 93% of churches in America have less than 400 people. There's a great temptation today to think that ministering in obscurity makes our witness and God's word somehow less effective. And with that mindset, a lot of people today would feel sorry for Philip in his new assignment. In chapter 8, 26. Philip is introduced to us in the book of Acts back in chapter 6 when the apostles were looking for help overseeing the daily distribution and care for widows in the church. He's one of the seven godly men selected to help with that. But when the church comes under intense persecution in chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, Philip finds himself among those who are scattered outside of Jerusalem, and he finds himself enjoying an extremely fruitful ministry in Samaria. In Acts 8, verses 4 through 8, we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention 
to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Philip is at the forefront of the gospel's expansion beyond Jerusalem, just as Jesus commissioned the church back in chapter 1, verse 8, beginning in Jerusalem and then into Judea, all Judea and Samaria. And now we've, we've expanded out, and, and here we are. The, the fires of persecution in Jerusalem pushed the church out, and now the gospel has ignited the city of Samaria. But then Philip gets a new assignment. And in comparison with the fruitful ministry in Samaria, we could rightly categorize this new assignment as somewhat unexpected. And that's where our story starts, an unexpected assignment, verses 26 to 29. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And notice what the author emphasizes at the end there. He, he makes sure we get the fact that this is a desert place. He's to head back down to Jerusalem and through that, to take the road toward Gaza, which is barren. It's empty. This is not a big city. There are no massive crowds. He's sent to an obscure context, which, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense for us today. Why would you take your star player fresh off winning his first World Series and send him down to the minor leagues to play ball in front of a bunch of octogenarians who may or may not show up? I mean, that doesn't compute for us, right? But this is God's assignment. It was an angel of the Lord who gave him that instruction, and Philip obeys. Verse 27, he rose and went. And along the way, someone does show up, or rather, Philip encounters someone. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. There in the middle of nowhere... Where you least expect it, Philip encounters a man. And not just a man, we're we're told several things about him. First, he was Ethiopian, a black man. Though what the ancient Greeks called Ethiopia was uh, ancient Nubia, so it's a little bit north of modern Ethiopia. It's right kind of southern Egypt, northern Sudan. Uh, This is a sculpture of a Nubian an Ethiopian in our story that dates to about 100 years before Christ. So the man Philip encounters was almost certainly a Gentile, non-Jew. Some suggest that because the, the gospel really goes to the Gentiles in chapter 10, that maybe he was like a Jewish slave captured in Ethiopia. But, but Luke was very clear back in chapter 2 to specify when Jews from every nation were gathered in Jerusalem. He doesn't make that specification here. So I think with confidence, we can say this man is an Ethiopian, a Nubian. He's a Gentile. But he wasn't just any Ethiopian. He was a very important Ethiopian. He was a court official of Candace, the queen of 
the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And Candace here is not a name, it's the title of the queen mother uh, in the Ethiopian empire. And, and sometimes the Candace actually ruled instead or in place of her son. And so, so being in charge of the queen's treasury quite possibly makes this man the CFO of ancient Ethiopia. He's a big deal. But third, this important royal official was either a convert to Judaism or a God-fearing Gentile who was spiritually curious about Israel's God. The reason he's on this road right now is because he is returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem where he went to worship the Lord. And as he's returning, he's spending his time reading Israel's scripture, the prophet Isaiah. It's remarkable. But there's one more detail we're given, something that is mentioned five times in the story. He was a eunuch. It was common among court officials in the ancient world as a means of subjugation to injure their manhood, if you will. And you see that, for instance, in the Persian officials in the book of Esther. Uh, but as a eunuch, this man, despite his curiosity and, and genuine desire to worship Israel's God, he was prohibited from entering the temple. In Deuteronomy 23.1, we learn that no eunuch shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so this great man of importance was physically barren and spiritually outcast. And so that's the scene. This unexpected assignment, God sends Philip to a barren place where he encounters a barren man. No crowds, no cities, ministry in obscurity. And again, many today have trouble with that. I mean, that kind of assignment feels like JV, junior varsity. And that's not just true for pastors and churches. That can be true for anyone serving in the church. To feel that if I'm really going to be effective for God, I need a bigger platform. I need an upfront role, maybe a title, you know, to get out from behind the scenes to do something that really matters for God. And, and I'm not criticizing aspirations in ministry, the desire to serve God in a particular way, nor am I criticizing the importance of, of making sure my gifts are aligned with my service. Too often churches will just find a warm body to plug a hole, and they're not helping people understand how God has wired and gifted them and helping them use those gifts to serve and, and equip others. What we have to be careful of is the idea that, that ministering in big ways, in noticeable context, or to many people is somehow more important or more spiritual or strategic than ministering to one person who needs Jesus. Don't be afraid to minister the gospel in obscurity where no one else knows, no one else sees, but God. Philip was not afraid of that. He obeyed God. If you look at verse 30, God said, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him. He didn't drag his feet. He didn't question the assignment. He ran to him. And what follows from this unexpected assignment is a surprising 
conversation. That's what we have in verses 30 to 35. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now that's like the ideal evangelistic conversation, right? You're sitting in the coffee shop and, and, and the Lord kind of nudges you to go talk to this person and and, and so you walk over, praying that this won't be awkward, and lo and behold, they're reading their Bible, and then they ask you to sit down and explain it to them. I mean, that kind of softball situation, that's what Philip walks into here. And what better passage for the man to be reading than Isaiah 53? Luke tells us that the text he was pondering from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, like a sheep He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, um, you'll recognize that this is one of the four servant songs in the latter part of the book, and perhaps the greatest among them, it's the song of the suffering servant. Uh, put it this way, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is, no, you get nothing more clear or to the point than Isaiah 53. This is a chapter where you find verses like this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, the verses that the Ethiopian eunuch was meditating on in this chapter. Focus more on the injustice of the servants, the injustice of the servants' suffering than what we typically focus on, the substitutionary sacrifice. And if you think about it, that's interesting. Because here's a man who, who, who his, his generation has been cut off from him. He cannot have children. Reading about someone whose generation was cut off from him, his life was taken from the earth. He recognizes the injustice of this suffering. He wants to know, who is this? But but why was this servant so willing to endure such injustice? Why was he willing to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? The rest of the chapter tells us it was so he could give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever this servant is, he willingly died in order to take on himself the rightful punishment that the rest of us deserved. And so the the Ethiopian eunuch wants to know, who is this guy? Whom is the prophet talking about? Who is, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Who's Isaiah 53 about? And that's a question that's been wrestled with for for centuries. Is this servant in this chapter the nation of Israel? As it clearly is earlier in chapter 41, but you, Israel, my servant. And as Jewish scholars have insisted for centuries, is, is it Israel? Is the prophet talking about himself like the Ethiopian eunuch wondered? And as many critical scholars have suggested in recent days, this is Isaiah talking about himself. Or is it someone else? 
perhaps a singular person who stands in for the nation, who is and does for them everything that they were meant to be and to do, but failed to be and to do. So, so if you follow Israel, if you follow Isaiah's argument in, in these chapters, you see that, yes, Israel was to be God's servant. That was their job. A servant who, according to Isaiah 42, 6 through 7, was to be a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind. But Israel fails their job description. Isaiah 42, 19, God laments, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is the messenger whom I send. They failed their job description. The servant whose job was to open blind eyes ended up being blind himself. Not much help there. And so God promises in Isaiah 49 to raise up a singular servant who will stand in place for the nation, who will be for them and do for them what they were supposed to be and do, who will bring back the people of Israel to God, but not just that. He'll also fulfill their job to be a light to the nations. If you look at Isaiah 49, 6, God says to his servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, to, to rescue Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That's the servant's job, the singular servant. But how is he going to do that? How, how, how will he be qualified to rescue rebels from Israel and rebels from outside Israel? Isaiah 53. That's how he's qualified. Because he, as the perfect substitute, willingly faced unjust suffering. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. He was pierced for our transgressions so that we, through his wounds, might be healed. So who, who is the prophet saying this about? Who is the servant? That's what the eunuch wants to know. That's what we should all want to know. Philip says, let me tell you. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus, who Interestingly, you look at Luke Acts as a book, he begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke by citing Isaiah 61, saying that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, whose healing ministry in Matthew 8 was, quote, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, Isaiah 53. Jesus, who defines the purpose of his ministry in Mark 10 using the language of Isaiah 53, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, whom 1 Peter 2 tells us, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Who is this man who so willingly suffers 
unjustly. To bring back the rebellious children of Israel to be a light to Gentiles like the Ethiopian eunuch. Who is this man able to meet us in our barrenness, in our emptiness, in our sin and rebellion, and fill us with life? Who welcomes the outcast? Who answers the prayers of those who are far off and not even permitted into the temple? who brings us to God, Philip's answer, and the answer throughout Acts is Jesus. It's only Jesus. That's a surprising conversation to stumble upon in the middle of the desert. But what a great reminder to expect the unexpected in evangelism to expect the unexpected in evangelism, to remember that if God is calling us, if He's moving us and sending us to open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus, then maybe, just maybe, He's already at work in the life of the person He's sending us to share with. We expect that people will not like what we have to say. We expect them to reject the message or or for it at least to be awkward. We expect people don't want to hear. But we don't know what God has already been doing in someone's life to prepare them for the conversation he sends us to have. Or how he, how we might be part of his work to prepare them for the conversation they're going to have years from now. Philip had no idea how hungry this man would be for the Lord. He had no idea he would find someone who just came from Israel or who would be reading the prophet Isaiah. God did. God knew exactly what he was doing in this man's life and sent Philip just for that moment. Expect the unexpected in evangelism. And something quite surprising and unexpected then happens as a result of this surprising conversation, that brings us to the final section, verses 36 to 40, and a remarkable result. All of a sudden, in a barren land, with a barren man, life springs forth. And you see it in the geography, you know, where the author went out of his way to specify, this is a desert place. Now, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. There are quite literally streams in the desert all of a sudden. One of the great motifs of the book of Isaiah that talks about God's promise of renewal comes to life in this story. But it's not just the the geography. New life bursts forth spiritually for the eunuch, who's he's excited about seeing water in the desert, not because he's thirsty, but because he's ready to get baptized. What prevents me from being baptized, he asks. And the answer is nothing. Nothing prevents him from being baptized. His ignorance of who Jesus is no longer prevents him because he has seen who Jesus is according to God's word. And the Spirit's taken that word and landed it on his heart in faith. His sin cannot prevent him 
because Jesus has fully dealt with it in his life, death, and resurrection. His situation as a eunuch and a foreigner cannot prevent him because Jesus is a light to all nations. So this man has become a believer in Jesus, a child of God, a new creation, and now stands ready to express his faith and union with Christ through the Christian ceremony of baptism. Now just a little trivia note. You may have noticed there's, there's no verse 37 in your Bibles if you're reading a modern English translation. Uh, that's because there's no verse 37 in any ancient manuscript prior to 800 A.D. Uh, what most likely happened with what we once had as a verse 37 and now don't is that some point along the way, someone's marginal notation who felt they needed to explain that the eunuch actually had faith, you know, got mistaken for belonging in the text. And, uh, but that, you know, we know from manuscripts that it's, it certainly was not original. And, and it's unnecessary to the story, too, because his request for baptism and Philip's response in baptizing him assumes faith in Jesus here. That's part of the story. And, and interestingly, in his baptism, we see a third sign of life springing forth in the desert. So remember how eunuchs were shut out of the assembly of God's people. How even in this man's recent pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he would have been unable to fully participate or be fully accepted. His baptism in Christ marks his full acceptance in the family of God. No longer as an outcast, no longer cut off, life springs forth, not just personally here, but community-wise and covenantally. And again, you, you read that, and if, if, if you're hearing Isaiah in the background of this story, you can't help but, but be drawn to God's promises in Isaiah 56. Just three chapters after the passage that the eunuch is meditating on. God says this through Isaiah, Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, barren, sterile, no progeny. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. They will be welcome in the assembly. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God says. What God promised to do one day for the foreigner and the eunuch in bringing the outsider into the people of God, of which the Ethiopian is both, what he promised to do, he fulfilled for this man when he, when he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He gave him an everlasting name to mark for all eternity that this man belongs to God. 
It's a remarkable result. You don't expect that to happen in the desert. For life to spring forth. And some of us don't expect that to happen in the desert of New England either. This is a barren land, spiritually speaking. This is hard soil. And that is true. But we can trust the Word of God to bear fruit in barren places. God says in yet another place in Isaiah, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is a promise. That is a promise of God. And we see it come alive in our story. And if we're watching for it, we'll see it in our lives. The church's growth does not depend on finding the right gimmick or focusing on the right methodology. The church's growth comes through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of His Word. It's the Word of God that does the work of God as the Spirit brings it to bear on our lives. And the gospel of Jesus has the power to bear fruit in the most barren of places and people. The story moves on, and Philip moves on, transported miraculously somehow. That'll be an interesting conversation someday. Where he continues to preach the gospel along the coastal towns of the Mediterranean. And the Ethiopian moves on as well, though he will never be the same. We're told that the, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Again, you can hear Isaiah 56, they will be joyful in my house of prayer. He goes on his way rejoicing because everything had changed. And, and that's, that's what we want for others in coming to know Christ. It's not about a political agenda. It's not about being right. It's about joy. It's about joy, real joy, lasting joy, not the stuff that excites for a moment and then leaves you even more empty afterwards. It is a joy that transcends anything this world can offer. It's something better than children that the eunuch will never have. It's better than a relationship we think that's going to give us life or a career we think will finally make a name for ourselves. It is an eternal name that marks us out as belonging to God forever. And there's only one name that offers that kind of lasting, incorruptible, unassailable joy. It's the name of Jesus. If we love people, we want them to know that joy. And so if you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to follow the model of the eunuch here 
and dig into the Bible. See what Scripture has to say about Jesus. But to the Christian, I ask you, how can they understand if no one explains to them? Or as Paul put it in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we need to pray that people would be spiritually curious that they would search the Scriptures looking for Jesus. But we also need to respond to God's call to go to them, open our mouths, and explain the good news of Christ. And to do it wherever He sends us. To the masses or to the one. Most Christians today have heard of D.L. Moody. And if you or pursuing ministry, it's easy to want to be like D.L. Moody. He's one of the most famous and influential uh, Christian leaders, American Christian leaders in the 19th century. He, Moody wrote books. He preached the gospel internationally before thousands. He started an influential church in Chicago. He started three colleges. Everybody wants to be like Moody. No one's ever heard of Edward Kimball. I don't know if he went to college. I don't know if he ever left the country. I know he never wrote a book. Edward Kimball taught Sunday school, a church in downtown Boston, faithfully every week. And one young man that he recruited to his Sunday school class and whom he had a chance to sit down and open God's word and explain to him the good news of Jesus, that young man was Dwight L. Moody. Don't be afraid of ministering in obscurity and expect the unexpected in your evangelism. Expect God to show up. Expect that God has already been working all along. And most of all, trust the Word of God to do its work, to bear fruit in barren places. It will not return void. The gospel of Jesus has the power to bear fruit in the most barren of places and people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would increase our faith. Why is it that a story like this strikes us as so unusual or shocking? Lord, that we would expect you to show up, that we would trust that your word is powerful to accomplish that for which you send it. Lord, increase our faith as your witnesses, as your children. Help us to be faithful to you, to be willing to be used by you wherever you call us, however you send us, that Christ 
might be seen in all his true beauty and majesty and life-giving power. That he would be seen for the treasure that he is. That your spirit would give delight to people by bringing them to him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.